Thanks for choosing a 3CR podcast. Throughout June 2021, we're running our annual Radiothon when we ask you, the listener, to make a donation so that we can continue to make great radio. Your donation will help keep us community-owned and community-controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. And with that done, please enjoy your podcast. afternoon listeners and welcome to the dogs program the australian council for the defense of government schools we are here on 3cr every saturday at midday to promote and defend public education uh jean is unable to be with us this week but she has provided us with her world famous press release we're at press release 902 uh, and any of these press releases you can find at the dogs website which is www.adogs.info uh, today we'll be talking a bit about uh obviously the public money going for public good as well as uh we'll be listening to a little bit of audio an excerpt of uh from uh, a talk that was done in earlier this year in April um, on the racist history of standardised testing. Uh, and then after that, we'll be uh, talking about one teacher's efforts to encourage uh, natural learning. Uh, that is how a state school can use the resources around it uh, in its uh, natural environment, but more about that later. Uh, let's just dive right in. Uh, this is a press release. 902. There's a lot of talk about back to basics from right-wing think tanks in both the USA and Australia. But dogs suggest we do go back to basics if we think we are a democracy. In a commonwealth, we pay taxes for the common weal or the common good. When this comes to schools, only public schools are dedicated to the public not the private good. They are public in purpose and outcome, public in access and public in ownership and control and the only schools that can be publicly accountable. Therefore, they are the only ones that should be publicly funded. If your objective is to educate the whole population of citizenry who pay taxes for the common good, then public schools are the only schools that can and will do it. Private schools are dedicated to the private individual good or privilege and cannot and never have considered all of the children. If a private school fails, the children have nowhere to go unless there's a public school nearby. All the hype of the neoliberals of the last 30 years about private being preferable and more efficient than public and the need to reform, that is, privatise public education has had a sharp reality check in the last decade, not only with the GFC, but now the plague. These basic facts have been thrown into perspective in Chicago, where charter schools, America's equivalent to private schools, which are being called public but are really private for profit schools, have been defunded. Uh, for your information, we reproduce a very interesting article by Jeff Bryant from the Progressive magazine and entitled The End of School Reform. Uh, Jeff Bryant is the lead fellow of the Progressive Public Schools Advocate Project and a writing fellow and chief correspondent for Our Schools, a project of the Independent Media Institute. I'll pass it over to Madeline to let you know what he has written. Over to you, Maddie. Thank you so much, Dale. He says, 
whatever leadership imperatives become the new driving force behind the next education policy directives, they are doomed to irrelevance if they ignore the needs and interests of teachers. It was telling that few people noticed when Chicago's Board of Education announced in late May that it was closing down its school turnaround program and folding the 31 campuses operated by a private management company back into the district. The once all-pervasive and generously funded policy movement known as education reform has ended, not with a bang, but a whimper. The turnaround program has been a cornerstone of Renaissance 2010, the education reform policy led by former Chicago Public Schools Chief Officer Arne Duncan, or Arnie Duncan, who became US Secretary of Education during the Obama administration. As the news outlet Catalyst Chicago reported, Duncan used the core principles of Renaissance 2010 as the basis for Race to the Top, his signature policy that he rolled out to the nation. Race to the Top, a successor to former President George W. Bush's No Child Left Behind program, included holding schools accountable for higher scores on standardised tests, inserting private management companies into district administration and ramping up charter schools to compete with public schools. Another news event affecting Chicago public schools that got very little national attention was the decision by the Illinois state legislator to rescind mayoral control of Chicago schools and bring back a democratically elected school board. The plan is backed by the state's Democratic governor, J.B. Pritzker, and predictably opposed by Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot. For years, prominent Democratic leaders, including New York Governor Andrew Cuomo and former Chicago Mayor and previously Obama White House Chief of Staff, Rahm Emanuel, touted mayoral control and a rejection of school board governance. A third story from the Chicago education scene was that in December, Noble Charter Network, the city's largest charter school chain disavowed its no excuses approach to educating black and brown students because of the racist implications. Noble's decision added to other reports of no excuses charter chains, dropping their harsh behavioral control and discipline policies during the past year. These stories highlight the waning of three school improvement approaches, strict accountability with private management, mayoral control, and no excuses charter schools. Each approach was among the pillars of education reform favored by previous pre presidential administrations and heartily endorsed by Washington DC. Policy shops such as the Center for American Progress. Over to you, Sorrel. Thank you, Madeline. Taken in unison, these three stories also contribute to the much larger narrative of how once all-pervasive and generously funded policy movement known as education reform has ended, not with a bang, but with a whimper. Other policy directives of the reform movement that are also being relegated to the dustbin of history include state takeovers of low-performing schools, evaluating teachers based on student test scores, and flunking third graders, who score below a certain threshold on reading exams. Architects and cheerleaders of the reform movement have noticed how their cause has transitioned into a sunset phase. Connor Williams, a fellow at the Century Foundation, who has lifted up the outcomes of education reform in Washington, D.C., writes for The 74, a pro-reform media outlet, that we've arrived at the end of an era in American public education calling the ideas propelled by the policies like race to the top pretty much toast. Writing in Education Week, Van Scholes, who as president of the nonprofit A Plus Colorado, was a prominent driver of reform in that state, declared the movement over and urged his reform-minded colleagues to work directly with those closest to the problems and focus now on listening. Anyone taking to heart advice to listen to educators and advocates on the ground had, be better, had better be ready to hear a cacophony. However, in school board meetings and other public forums around the country, 
It's been the voices of angry parents and political agitators, often financially backed by right-wing think tanks and advocacy groups, advocacy groups, who are the ones being heard. They have demanded that schools open for in-person learning during the pandemic, pushed to lift requirements that students wear masks and practice social distancing, and most recently have denounced teachers for supposedly indoctrinating children in ideas such as critical race theory that they argue shame white people and create divisiveness in society. Pitched battles over school curriculums and teaching practices, like the one being waged in Loudoun County, Virginia, where a recent school board meeting had to be shut down, a raucous audience member was arrested and school board members now have to face a recall, have overtaken more sober and reasoned policy discussions about how to improve students' academic outcomes and respond to their social and emotional needs. These conflicts, as Adam Sanchez reports in this issue of The Progressive, have led to a raft of new bills, many now enshrined as state laws, aiming to force teachers to teach a mythological version of US history that omits shameful facts about racism and other forms of discrimination. The expansive language of these bills, warned Sanchez, a high school history teacher in Philadelphia, will undoubtedly have a chilling effect on the classroom and force teachers to hide the truth of racism, past and present, in the United States. Sarah Lam, in her companion article, reveals much of what and who is behind these efforts to muzzle teachers from talking about the truth in their lessons. They are, she says, right-wing provocateurs, prompted by former President Donald Trump's call to rise up and demand that students are receiving a patriotic pro-American education. But we would be remiss to focus on the culture war raging in schools without noticing the other education agenda that right-wing politicians have rolled out across the nation. As Jessica Levin explains, Republican lawmakers in more than a dozen states have introduced bills to create new school voucher programs or expand existing ones that redirect money meant for funding public education into private schools. Some of these bills failed. Others have now become law. Levin describes the various ways these voucher programs shape shift into deceptive scholarships, tax credits, and savings accounts that sound pleasing to the public, but hide an intent to defund public schools, create a private marketplace of unaccountable private academies, and further stratify communities along racial and economic lines. It's not hard to see how the two agendas, turning public schools into acrimonious battlegrounds over race and politics, while enticing parents to abandon them, would work hand in hand. Proponents of failed education reform are largely at fault for this current state of affairs, either because they didn't see it coming or because they saw it coming but didn't care. But the greater harm that education reformers committed was to leave, in the wake of the collapsed movement, virtually nothing of value. This created a void for the extremist factions that now dominate the GOP to fill allowing them to foment a culture war against public schools. If proponents of now defunct reform policies are at all sincere about listening to those closest to the ground, several authors in this issue should have their ear. Ditchu Brown and Beth Glenn, for instance, channel the pulse of grassroots organizations across the country who are intent on making the reopening of schools an opportunity to renew calls for equity in the education system and to push funding and to push full funding for schools. And it's a fair distribution to support our neediest students. Maria C. Fernandez and Jonathan Stiff point to the demand bubbling up from the ground to reduce police presence in public schools and end the criminalization of black, brown and poor students in the name of public safety. They call attention to recent successes in removing cops from schools that are now quietly being undone and they urge instead the increased investment in supports that address the real needs of young people. 
Whatever leadership imperatives become the new driving force behind the next education policy directives, they are doomed to irrelevance if they ignore the needs and interests of teachers. And teachers, as Peter Green describes, are in a vulnerable place. This summer has been about trying to recover, regroup and recapture some sense of normal, he writes. And yet there is lingering concern that we may not get there. Green hastens to point out that there are real major issues in our schools and also manufactured issues that get in the way of progress. Clearly, teachers, parents and students want us to deal with the real issues that need attending to in our schools and shed the manufactured ones that pervade the reform agenda and dominate the current culture war carried out by right-wing radicals. Are we ready to do that? Thanks for that, Maddie and Sorrel. It's very interesting to see what's happening in the States and it's not so different to what's happening in Australia here. We still have a whitewashing of the curriculum here in Australia and um, right-wing alarmists suggesting any change or recognition of First Nations history is going to be detrimental to students. But we'll have a quick break now and then we'll come back with some more from the dogs. Sisters, what a show of strength we've got here today. Local issues. So I'm here at the school, kids strike for climate action. Live coverage. Join the, the spirit of this gathering here today at IMARC. Your voices. So give us a bit of a lowdown about what's happening. There's about 200, 250 people here at the moment. Community struggles. We're now in front of the uh, Tundaminawaya Mawbohina Monument. I'd like to thank Community Radio 3CR, who for the last decade has been broadcasting here. Feed Radical Radio, your membership is vital. A few hundred people about to pass us right now. Lots of young people standing up for their future. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. Welcome back to The Dogs. You'll listen to The Dogs on 3CR, the Australian Council for the Defence of Government Schools. And now we're going to listen to a small part of a discussion on the racist history of standardised testing that was held in April this year. It's worth considering just how and why this style of so-called education came to exist and be perpetuated. You'll hear Awo Akaiko Ari Price begin the conversation. So I'll let her introduce the speakers. Hello, everybody. Welcome to our discussion on the racist history of standardized testing. My name is Awo Akaiko Ari Price. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And I am on the occupied territory of the Lenape, Lenape people currently referred to as the state of New Jersey. I'm a former classroom teacher and one of the founding steering committee members of Black Lives Matter at school and a co-founder of MAPSO Freedom School. This is a conversation that we have been hearing bubbling up all over and all over again as we near testing season. And we're there, we're at testing season, right? And or it's been expanded beyond April and May. We're starting to see now states are actually looking at having their test in, in the fall because they weren't able to do it in the in the in the spring. So I kind of want to just begin by lifting up the importance of this conversation, particularly at this moment. In the midst of a global pandemic where many schools, districts, students, and teachers are returning back to school, many of our schools are have seen um, this as an opportunity to move forward with administering um, standardized man- mandated tests. At a time when folks are experiencing collective and personal loss and grief. When we think about grief, we think about grief on the multiple levels that people are experiencing grief, but we cannot separate this impulse to move toward testing our students during this pandemic, during this time, these multiple pandemics, we cannot separate it out from the racist history of standardized testing in our country and beyond. If we understand the racist history of standardized tests and their role in building 
this nation and its schools and its education system, then maybe we can be more intentional about how we demand what we demand in our states. Some folks are pushing for it now, while others are given waivers or administering the test in the fall. But I want us to take some time to discuss this history. How has it impacted the life and experiences of people, our education system, our learning environments, our communities, this current narrative that we're hearing being lifted up around learning loss? And then what alternatives must we, be, must we hold up? What alternatives should we be looking for? We'll be joined by Jesse Agopian, who is a member of the National Black Lives Matter School Steering Committee and who teaches ethnic studies at Seattle's Garfield High School. He is the co-editor of Black Lives Matter at School and Uprising for Educational Justice and editor of Rethinking Schools Magazine, editor of More Than a Score and co-editor of Teaching for Black Lives. And Wayne Au, who is a professor at the School of Educational Studies at the University of Washington, Bothell. He is a longtime Rethinking Schools editor, co-editor of Teaching for Black Lives, and author of the uh, Marxist Education, Learning to Change the World. And so we're going to start this conversation, and I want us to start with, let's start with the history. Let's start with, let's start with the racist history of standardized testing, right? When we think about eugenics, even that that word, the definition of that word, eugenics, which means, was it, good genes, and the history around why standardized tests were used and its impact on us now and today. So, Wayne, would you like to kick us off? Right on. Thank you so much, Okai Korsh. Yeah, so I'm going to spend the next few minutes sort of just going through some of the early history of standardized testing in the United States in particular and sort of highlighting the the, the ways it's really strongly connected to race and racism and fundamentally white, white supremacy. Um, if you go back to sort of really the origins of, of our standardized tests, they really begin with what's called IQ testing, right? We're all pretty familiar with that. And, and IQ actually literally stands for intelligence quotient, where basically... Alfred Binet, who was a French psychologist, was trying to actually create a, an assessment of young, very young children to see if they, if, to, to see if they had any um, uh, developmental uh, disabilities or any developmental issues. And it was literally, you take this test and you divide the score by by the age, and that's how you get an intelligence quotient. Literally, the division of that. But anyways, Binet was doing this very much just for these little kids. But these, there, there's a, a crew of of U.S. American uh, white American men uh, who were psychologists who brought these this uh, Binet's assessment over and then made their own version and they they wanted they like strongly believed in a very sort of biologically based very fixed notion of IQ and these were folks like uh, Lewis Terman Henry Goddard and, and Robert Yerkes are the few of the names and they in 1917 they they created these these army tests alpha and beta tests. And they actually um, gave them to um, a huge pool of over a million recruits for World War One. And then they thought, you know, they, they thought they were scientists. They thought that they were uh, coming up with a quote unquote objective results free of bias. And according to their quote unquote objective findings from these tests that they gave to these army recruits, um, they found that darker Europeans and blacks and native folks and immigrants and the poor were essentially all less intelligent than lighter Europeans and white folks born in the U.S. and the rich. Sort of magically, this is what the results uh, turned out to be. During the same time period, there was a really strong uh, eugenics movement in the U.S., right? This idea that that intelligence and also behavioral traits could be tied, be, be tied to our genes, that they were, it was biologically determined. And so the results of these tests ended up really fe became fuel to the eugenics fire in the U.S. because then people started seeing and using the test scores to kind of be like, oh, okay, well then these folks, they shouldn't be breeding, right? They're, they're, they're dumber than, than the rich folks and the white folks. It gives like evidence to support, support their claims. And then I think a lot of folks don't get, they think, oh, IQ, IQ tests and eugenics and all that stuff, that's sort of way back, that's over 100 years ago at this point. It has nothing to do with now, but... What I think folks don't get is actually these same tests were the ones that were adopted and brought directly into the public school system during that time. Yeah. So if you take uh, Lewis Terman, who was a professor at Stanford, uh, he basically adapted IQ testing for public schools, and it became the Stanford Binet Intelligent Test. Some folks are familiar with that that terminology, um, and he came up with four categories of what these tests showed us in terms of intelligence that that humans could be could be sorted into either being quote unquote feeble minded quote-unquote dull, quote-unquote average, or quote-unquote superior. And the other hard part folks have 
troubles with sort of uh, reconciling around this history is just that this is the basis of tracking as well, yeah. right? So not only do we have the origins of standardized testing in this really sort of racist and classist uh, form of assessment, but that became the whole idea of like who's going to go to college and who's going to go into the trades, and yeah. and and then that got ter- that got used as a weapon in the racialization, uh, particularly of, of blacks and Latinx folks uh, in in this country. And the same person, so Louis Terman, a couple of things. He he actually believed that that certain races inherited the quote unquote deficient IQs, and he thought that no amount of school instruction will ever make them intelligent voters or capable citizens. He also believed that that feeble-mindedness, that's his word, was quote-unquote very, very common among Spanish Indians and Mexican families of the Southwest, and also amongst black folks. He used the word Negroes. Mm -hmm. He also believed that quote-unquote children of this group should be segregated into special classes and be given instruction that's practical, and that they cannot be, that quote-unquote, they cannot master abstractions, but they can be made into efficient workers, Mm -hmm. right? And so, and so these tests really be moved into the public school system, took the public schools by storm, because if you think about it, this is also the time when we first started seeing the really rapid growth of mass schooling in the United States. It also sort of coincides with the fact that children weren't allowed to work in factories anymore, and they had to figure out some place to put all these kids. And, uh, and so folks were looking for an efficient way to sort these, this, these masses of, of children coming into schools. And, and so districts started purchasing and using these assessments like wholesale uh, for for tracking and pre-testing and all sorts of stuff uh, for the students in, in their in, in their schools. And again, folks might say, well, that's 100 years ago. That's not now. And the, the main thing I would point to around that is also to say that there's a presumption built into the test that we that we use now that the psychometricians, the folks who build the tests, really do believe in a bell curve of intelligence. They believe that that intelligence is distributed unevenly across human populations and that a quote-unquote good or valid assessment will produce results that follow that bell curve, saying, oh, there's a, bunch, there's a small group of people here at the high end and a bunch of people in the middle mm-hmm. and, a bunch of people, and then a group of people here at the, at the low end. And, and really, I would say that's still the logics of eugenics, right, mm-hmm. built right into these presumptions around the tests. And the final point I'll make is that in terms of just empirically, if we look at those results from 100 years ago and their quote-unquote objective findings about poor folks and folks of color and immigrants being less intelligent according to their measures, if we can just go, oh, okay, let's look at the how folks frame the achievement gap now, right? And and I challenge the notion of achievement gap, but, but that's the language that gets used. And really, if we look at the results, the results we have now essentially parallel the results we had 100 years ago uh, from those tests. We still see poor folks and folks of color um, and lots of immigrant groups doing more poorly on these tests than than white folks and, and affluent folks. And I think that's kind of indisputable. It's like we built in an algorithm, like we built in a, a coding into our education system and it's spitting out. The output is still the same from when we started back that time period, during that time period when we first started designing standardized tests um, and what it is now. And it's still doing exactly what it was designed to do, right? Yes. Jesse, yes. So I want you to take us into like us thinking about like what are some of these barriers around high stakes testing today um, around equity? Yeah, I mean it's exactly what what you said, Okaikor. Um, that when you know the origins and the roots of high stakes standardized testing, then the outcomes today shouldn't surprise us, right? And I think that. The purpose of high-stakes standardized testing has always been about ranking and sorting, right? It's always been about making sure that people know their place because I think that white supremacy and racial capitalism in this country has maintained itself through a few different uh, strategies, right? One of those strategies we see when people get together and protest, well, they bring out huge numbers of, of police and National Guard to smash resistance, right? But they would rather have a society where people know their place, quote unquote, where people accept the logic of inequality, where you're trained from a very young age to know that if you don't get a high paying job, that's because you had a lower intelligence, right? And so there's all these systems in place, standardized testing being, I think, one of the most effective tools that they've had to train the each generation to accept their place in, in society. 
And so I knew from the from third grade that I wasn't intelligent when I first saw my first standardized test score. It was, I remember it vividly. I, I was at a parent-teacher conference. My mom and my third grade teacher were out in the hallway in a little kid chairs sitting around a desk. And the teacher pulled out the, I think it was the CAT test, the California mm-hmm. Achievement Test. And there was like a a blue line that ran through the middle that showed the average score. And then there was my dot that was way down below. And so I knew from that time until just about uh, halfway through college that I wasn't intelligent and I had the scores to prove it to you. And I came to reject a lot of the logic of this system that trains people to self-hate and accept the inequality. But I didn't really fully grasp how intentional this process was until I read Wayne Al's book that I think everybody needs to, to read, Unequal by Design. And that, that book was revelatory for me, right, to understand that I'd been set up as a black student in this country to believe that I wasn't intelligent and that that setup has a long history based in eugenics really changed the way I saw myself and my dedication to the struggle. So thank you, Wayne, for your, for your scholarship and, and commitment to this work. I greatly appreciate it on many levels. And, and given that, it shouldn't surprise us that black folks have been at the forefront of fighting against standardized testing for decades including in this panel today, but people should know that W.E.B. Du Bois was a leading public intellectual who fought against the use of these tests to rank and sort the races. And Horace Mann Bond did really important work. And he wrote an essay called Intelligence Tests and Propaganda in 1924, where he basically laid out what we call today the zip code effect. That what these tests measure is not your intelligence, not even your learning, but what they measure is your access to resources. And so what they measure above all else, what, what standardized test scores today most closely correlate with is your zip code. Yeah. Because they, they tell you what neighborhood you live in and the wealth in that neighborhood and the proximity to whiteness, right? And so... You know, today, these tests are playing a similar role that they've played throughout history, only in some ways even worse because they've exploded into the public schools, right? When I was a kid, we had the CAT test in elementary school, and then we had another in middle school, and then we might have had a couple in in high school, and and then the SAT, right? Um But today, the average American public school student takes an astonishing 112 standardized tests, 112 standardized tests. What that means is that every month students are getting ready for another high stakes standardized test. And what that means is that it's not just being used to rank and sort anymore, it is driving all of the curriculum. Because if educators and students are being judged based on this test score, then the the teachers increasingly are bending the curriculum to how to achieve on a standardized test. And what we know about these tests are that they're really good at telling us who can eliminate wrong answer choices at faster rates than others and who is closer to the white dominant culture who the tests were written for, but they're not so good at telling us who can critically think. And so when we're, when we're bending the curriculum to what's on a standardized test that was created by a corporation that doesn't know the kids that, that I teach, it's highly detrimental. And I also think folks should know that schools that serve BIPOC students have the highest concentrations of these tests, right? So that private schools 
that serve the elite, they don't waste their time with these tests. Schools like Lakeside, where Bill Gates sends his kids, I mean, he's invested a fortune into the quote-unquote accountability movement to inundate the public schools with high-stakes standardized testing so that black and brown children can be tested and punished. But for his own kids, he wants them to go to a school where there is <laughs> arts and music and plenty of time for reflection and critical thinking. And, and the you know, you might have to take the SAT, but, but that's about it, right? So I, I just think that it's so important that we understand the way these tests are being weaponized against black and brown youth disproportionately in, in our schools today, and that that shouldn't surprise us given, given the history. And I, I guess I just want to end by, by making one last point, that I think that the central contradiction of standardized testing is that Knowledge is fundamentally a social phenomenon. The way we come to understand ourselves in the world is about being in relationship with other people. Mm -hmm. But standardized testing is fundamentally an isolated individual act, right? Mm -hmm. And it tells us nothing about what students can do in collaboration with others, which should be the whole purpose of education, Right? figuring out how you can interact with others. And the great psychologist Lev Vygotsky talked about a uh, zone of proximal development, of, of finding out what a student can do with help from peers and, and mentors, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and thinking about how do we measure that as a more important skill. Uh, skill and standardized tests tell us nothing about what you can do in collaboration with others. And I think that when we shift that as our goal, then we have to look to other kinds of assessments. And, and we also have to understand that, that black and brown youth often are very good at collaborating to solve mm -hmm. problems and that that isn't measured by, by these tests. See, you know, what you said, it reminded me, you know, something you said about, you know, there, black folks have been fighting for and fighting against and pushing back against their standardized tests. And it reminded me of that quote um, that W.E. Du Bois I kind of came across a while ago where he says, it was not until a long, I was long out of school and indeed after the first world war that there came the hurried use of the new technique of psychological tests which are quickly adjusted so as to put black folks absolutely beyond the possibility of civilization, which speaks to, like, I often call this, like, the opportunity apartheid, right? There was a, a, a manufactured and structurally put into place where we were not able to access opportunity, and it was structured into the assessment so that we would it would follow us no matter where in our jobs, in our ability to earn income, our ability our ability to buy houses in certain areas, because that standardized test also kind of construct, you know, the wealth of people's homes too as well. Like we're seeing how real estate agencies are using it. Um, say, look, our school district is top nine. It's a nine school district and the standardized test scores are at this percent. And then house prices are really high, right? Which are used to, you know, further segregate our communities. That point about pushing us further beyond the possibility of civilization has always like stuck with me um, in terms of how the tests have been used. And that was an excerpt from The Racist History of Standardised Testing, the full audio of which is available on YouTube. And I will include a link to that, to that discussion in the details section when I podcast today's program so you can listen to the full talk. The speakers included Awo Akaiko Ari Price, co-founder of the MAPSO Freedom School and Black Lives Matter at School. Wayne Au is the author of Unequal by Design, High Stakes Testing and the Standardization of Inequality, which is well worth checking out. That's Wayne Au. His surname is A-U. And uh, the book is Unequal by Design. You also heard there Jesse Hagopian, who's the co-editor of More Than a Score, 
Jesse makes some great points about accepting the logic of inequality and the kind of social engineering that begins at primary school when children are taught that they are unintelligent because of test scores. Children discouraged to love learning. He rightly makes the point that testing is a measure not of intellect, but of one's access to resources. And that knowledge is fundamentally a social phenomenon and testing only isolates the learning process. It's also worth keeping in mind that the corporations that oversee the quality of the testing are the very same corporations employed to create the tests. Ergo, they always seem to give themselves good marks. That is, they report that the testing is suitable, effective and working just fine. Thank you very much. When collaboration takes a back seat to competition, society at large loses. There is no functional social mobility, and once again, the status quo is maintained, and a type of opportunity apartheid continues. You're listening to The Dogs on 3CR, and we'll be right back after a short break. The Black Lives Matter movement is not going away here or overseas. It gives me hope seeing the numbers of people that turn out to these Invasion Day demonstrations in Melbourne. It gives me the understanding that we will win, folks. We will succeed! Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. You know, it's quite confusing, the cultural heritage laws in this country, and that is of extreme concern to our people across this country and you know, not only the Japarong trees, there's Duke and Gorge, and there are a number of other sacred areas of extreme significance to our peoples across the country that are being, you know, because of the cultural heritage laws that are in place are, you know, not actually protecting our heritage at all. 3CR Radiothon, community powered radio. To donate, call 03. 03- 94198377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au For three years, teachers have had their qualifications, their pay, their pensions and their working conditions attacked relentlessly by this government. I'm a proud product of a government-funded primary school education and of a government-funded secondary school education. Australia is one of the richest and luckiest countries in the world and there's no reason whatsoever why we can't have the very best public schools in the world. It's still not good enough that kids with disability miss out. Our education is not for profit. Our education is not for profit. You're listening to The Dogs, the defence of government schools on 3CR. Welcome back, listeners. You're listening to The Dogs Program here on 3CR, the Australian Council for the Defence of Government Schools on 3CR, 855 AM, 3CR Digital, or streaming live at 3cr.org.au. Now, we've got more about a public school principal who's trying to take advantage of what's in her local area. And more on that, I'll throw over to you, Maddie. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, natural learning? I absolutely can. Thank you, Dale. So maths and spelling were a struggle for Trish Forsyth, who is disheartened not to receive more support from her teachers. She says, from as early as I can remember, I wanted to be a teacher who helped learners like me. I knew exactly who I didn't want to be like as an educator. Forsyth studied early childhood education at Charles Sturt University and settled on primary teaching after completing her third practicum in Indonesia. 
Based in Yogyakarta, the CSU students taught both primary and adult classes and toured a number of schools during the placement. Back home, and in just her second year of teaching, Forsyth was appointed principal of Rugby Public School in a village nearly 300 kilometres southwest of Sydney. At age 21, she was the youngest principal in the state. With just 17 students, she was able to take the entire school, along with some parents, on a 10-day excursion to Central Australia. The trip sparked an interest in experiential learning that continues today. After four years at rugby, Forsyth moved on to senior leadership roles in Sydney and spent a year working in Canada. 11 years ago, she returned to rural New South Wales to O'Connell Public School near her childhood home, southwest of Bathurst. It's a place where Forsyth puts her ideas about hands-on learning into action, particularly in the nearby Yarrabin Forest, with which she has felt a close connection all her life. Last year, she won a Public Education Foundation scholarship to spend $10,000 to expand her knowledge of forest education. O'Connell's 81 students spend two days each term in the forest, bushwalking, cycling, rock hunting, and the like, and say it's their favourite school activity. The visits cover all the key learning areas and develop curiosity, says Forsyth. A recent find of Aboriginal artefacts belonging to the local Wiradjuri people may provide a further area of study and discovery. Officially, forest days are field trips requiring a standard risk assessment. Each child has a whistle for signalling should they get into trouble. We've only had one accident when a student tripped and broke her arm. It's comforting to know that with 80-odd kids, snakes aren't stupid. They'll exit stage left with all those feet trudging through. Forsyth says she's grateful for having the AEU behind her when she makes big decisions to take such calculated risks. She encourages schools with locally accessible forests to start small. Visit a park for observation and exploration or even transform a disused area of the playground into a mini forest, even if it's just a mud kitchen. We've had one for a couple of years where the kids run a cafe making all manner of mud creations. Forsyth will complete her forest leadership certificate this year and says she will continue to use the forest as a resource across the curriculum. Isn't that beautiful? It's really interesting. And that's where state schools are greatly placed to take advantage of their local environment. I grew up in central Queensland uh, near Rockhampton and uh, our, our school was on the outskirts of Rockhampton uh, towards the coast and obviously right there was the Great Barrier Reef. Oh wow. Our school was the poorest state school. We had 50% Murray kids, 40% white kids and then uh, 10% kids of languages other than English um, at home uh, So and we had no school uniform. So it was it was considered one of the poorest schools, but it was very rich in heart because the principals, they saw that right at our front door was the Great Barrier Reef. So in high school, it was compulsory for every grade eight student to do marine biology. Wow. Yeah, and it was it was just known that every grade 8 student would get the opportunity to go to a place called Middle Island. I don't know if if people down here know of Great Keppel Island, but in the 80s it was a resort island. And uh, there was Great Keppel, uh, there was Little Keppel, and in the middle was Middle Island. And so our school used to do excursions to Middle Island to do snorkeling at the reef. And every grade 8 student got to do that excursion. And so it was in grade nine when you got a chance to choose electives, you got to, a chance to choose marine biology specifically, not just science, but marine biology itself. And that meant that you would also, because it became famous, that uh, students, there would be a year nine Middle Island camping trip and there'd be a year 11 Middle Island camping trip. 
And, uh, you know, I, I went to school with, uh, I think there was four kids in my year alone um, that went on to do university and study marine biology. And that was purely because the uh, the principals and the teachers had the foresight to recognise that right at our doorstep was an amazing natural resource that uh, yeah. that they went out of their way to give us kids access to, despite the fact that we were a very, very low-income school. And I think um, that's one of the nice things that's, that state schools are placed to be able to take advantage of that. And that's why the, the idea that all state schools are the same is such a furphy. It's such a yeah. lie because so, so many schools do take advantage of where they are and what is what the natural habitat around them is and how they can incorporate that into learning. Yeah, and into the curriculum. And it really just drums in to the kids that, the environment around you and your connection to land and country is so important in your development as a human being. You can't just be regurgitating out numbers and facts about science and writing essays. You need to be like in nature. You need to be touching nature. You need to be feeling nature to understand your place in the world. And and it, it really it shows. Well, it really it really hits home when you are when you are in a position to take a bit of plastic from the neck of a marine turtle. Yeah. When yeah. when you are a child, and that's a lived experience you have because your science class was at a reef. So incredible. You then don't go on to litter. You then go on to live your life as a citizen who considers their plastic waste and where it goes. Yeah. So it informs all manner of of a student as a citizen as well as a student. Yeah, exactly. And what it means to be a citizen of the world, like spread love, have empathy for people, and maybe we can make it a better place instead of trying jump on top of everyone and climb to the top of some system that is pointless. Yeah, and recognising that, you know, yeah, we are part of a larger biodiverse uh, world. You know, we are part of that diversity instead of, you know, we're fighting against it, which is unfortunately what uh, neoliberalism seems to be based on, you know. It's, it's all about the competition. It's all about the pillaging of resources, of natural resources that are finite. When students are given the opportunity to experience things like that, it becomes impossible for them as adults to not be mindful of their position as part of a biodiverse world. So that was my experience in the 80s of a state school in Queensland. I dare say uh, public liability insurance might not allow that kind of thing to happen these days because (laughs) in that article the lady mentioned the accident where the girl broke her arm and, you know, you can imagine the kind of stuff that can happen when you've got uh, 30 kids snorkelling, you know, and only four teachers. But, uh, you know, still it was a positive for all of us kids involved. Um, What about you girls' experience? Do you your state school experiences have you had any uh interaction with your local landscapes like that well it's interesting that you bring it up not necessarily the local landscape but the ability for public schools to offer uh interesting electives like marine biology like that's such an interesting thing that public schools are able to offer these different classes and um the public school that i went to one of the public schools that i went to in high school was sandringham college Um, and they are also so good at offering so many different subjects. Like they would allow any student basically to do any subject by correspondence and would like really support students doing subjects by correspondence to the degree that even if you had a timetable clash, like my friend um, had a timetable clash where she wouldn't have been able to study the subjects that she wanted to study, so they let her study philosophy by correspondence, even though the school offered it as a subject. And they also were able to like fully support students doing correspondence subjects. Um, There was a kid in a year older than me that did um, 
Hebrew by correspondence and he actually got number one in the state on on his Hebrew score, which is really so interesting that like these public schools are able to support students' different interests and different passions. Mm. And like they weren't just interested in making everyone do math and science and English and getting everyone's scores up. They were interested in offering like a diversity of subjects, even if those subjects wouldn't be like quote unquote marked up at the end of the year. And that's the thing that enables uh, children to get a love of learning. When you invite them to learn about something they're actually interested in, that's when they can fall in love with education. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's not a chore anymore. Of course not. So much of my schooling life, it just felt like a chore Mm. to do this subject, to do this essay, to do this math question because I'm told I have to. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. what about what about if I could do something I love and do really well at it? Wouldn't yeah. I be a more productive member of society? Oh, I was going to say it's wild because as soon as you go into further education or you pursue learning outside of your high school and primary school, you can. You can learn <laughs> what you want. Yeah. And then it becomes so interesting. Like university, I was so interested in all my subjects and I like willingly did all this work, whereas in high school, when you're told to do all these subjects, you, you're just not interested. In it. Yeah, when you're taught to learn to this standardised testing, you know, mm. <laughs> that's when it all becomes by rote and very uninteresting and uninspiring to the student. So, again, we, we come back to this whole idea of, um, you know, standardised testing being the death knell of creative inquiry and critical thinking. So well said. Anyway, that's it. we've run out of time for uh, the dogs today. Thank you for listening. Uh, as I said, I'll provide a link to the full discussion on the uh, racist history of standardised testing uh, in the podcast details. And hopefully Jean will be back with us again next week. But thank you, Mar- Maddie and Sorrel, for for playing this week. And uh, <laughs> if you'd like to read the press release, you can go to www.adogs.info. But until next Saturday, from the dog, it's bye for now.
was I but Joe, you're ten years dead. I never died, says he.